is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. In extreme danger, how would you react? Army Captain Florent Groberg knows what he'd do because he had to find out. In 2012, he was on a security detail in Afghanistan's Kunar province when a suspicious man approached. It turned out he was wearing a suicide vest. Groberg tackled him. The blast killed four men in his patrol. His quick response earned him the Medal of Honor last year. Today, Memorial Day, Captain Groberg takes us back. When the vest detonated, I did just everything went black. That's about it. I didn't feel anything. I just got knocked out. I woke up a couple minutes later on the ground, about 15 feet away, sort of in a haze, and my rifle was gone. I took my helmet off. All the straps in my helmet were loose. I just threw it away, and I just looked at my, at my I saw my leg, and my, my foot was facing me. My fibula was out. Um, leg was melting, blood everywhere. But I didn't feel anything. And at that point, I realized that I I'd been hit, and this was reality. But I was in shock, which was a good thing. And I remember thinking in my head, okay, I'm in shock. Okay, the leg's gone. They're going to have to cut that thing. I now need to check myself for internal wounds. Good, good. Check myself all over. I was good. Uh, make sure that uh, everything was still in place, what it was supposed to be. And um, I was probably more than likely part of a, an ambush where I would be following with SAF now, small arms fire, and I had to get myself out of the kill zone. So I took my pistol out, made sure I had a round in chamber, and started dragging myself out of the kill zone. So the shock, is that what allows you to be so... Um calm and self-possessed or is that just who you are i don't know i mean it's just you know i can't speak for everyone but i know for one thing uh, shock equals no pain and no pain equals my brain being able to function as a professional and that's what i was doing you know i felt the pain later on about 15 minutes later when the shock and adrenaline uh, uh, ran off but um until then i didn't feel anything and i knew that i had a specific amount of time i didn't know how long before the pain would come in, and uh, the pain would be pretty substantial. So I needed to act quickly, and uh, this is what we're trying to do, you know, just act like a soldier. That's it. What do I hear clinking in the background there? This? Yeah. That's the the clinking is the, my, I must apologize, it's my metal bracelet that I wear everywhere. Uh, every single day that reminds me of my guys that uh, didn't come home. Hmm. And these were people you were close to? I was really close to the command sergeant major, Unfortunately, I did not know Major Kennedy very well. But over the last three and a half years, I've had the you know blessed opportunity to learn so much about him and actually the other three guys as well from their family members, friends, and uh, just many strangers who have t- come up to me and said, I knew one of those men. This is how he affected my life. So the suicide bomber had what's called a dead man's trigger. Can you say more about that? A dead man's trigger is when the man, the, the individual with the bomb, man or woman, they press that button. And once you release the button, the bomb explodes. Hmm. So in this case, he pressed the button and came towards us, fully knowing that he was, as soon as he released it, he would kill all of us, including himself. What was the extent of your injuries? The extent of my injuries was, you know, I, I was lucky. I lost 50% of my calf. I have some uh, nerve damage. Can't feel my, my much of my leg below my uh, left knee. Um, can't move my toes, things like that. Had the TBI, traumatic brain injury, but that, that went away after a little while. Uh, just needed time to heal. And I've lost uh, quite a bit of my hearing, my left ear. But my I got a heck of a great right ear, so I can hear everything. But, um, yeah, I'm very lucky. Uh, nothing too serious. 
You've said twice there you were lucky. Absolutely. I, I don't know what my calling is or what for what purpose. I just know that I have to be a a better human being every single day and I have to utilize a second chance at life to make a positive difference in other people's lives as well. And specifically now starting my veteran community. But um, you know, the man detonated at my feet. He had twenty five to you know to thirty five uh pounds of homemade explosives on him on him and he did not kill me, but he killed four of my friends. It sounds like you've struggled with um, the question of why you survived when the others didn't. Survivor's guilt. Yeah, absolutely. I struggled with it uh, for a long time. I, I was in a very dark place early on in my recovery process when I was at Walter Reed as an inpatient. I had uh, what we call demons and what I specifically call demons in my head telling me some pretty awful things about me surviving and four great individuals uh, dying on my watch. And I was in charge of the security patrol. So uh, I struggled with that. And when you add in some Dilaudid oxys, ketamine, trazodone, uh, <laughs> ambient, Lunesta, all those uh, wonderful narcotics and, and different medicines for my recovery, it's just uh, a, it's a mix uh, for uh, danger. But fortunately, I was surrounded by my family and friends, but most importantly, some incredible wounded warriors who had gone through traumatic injuries and they allowed me to find myself, specifically a man, Travis Mills, who is a quadruple amputee, who came into my room and in 15 minutes changed my life to, for a positive by telling me, hey, look, you're blessed. And you just need to be grateful and stop being a crybaby. And I, uh, I took that to heart. So this gentleman who, who so inspired you, what you're saying is that he had no arms or legs. Is that right? That is correct. Do you remember more of what he said to you? I mean, stop being a crybaby doesn't sound like great advice when you're just struggling with demons. No, it's, it's, he came in on four prosthetics and he had a smile on his face and he said, what a great day to be alive. What a great day to be an American. And then he gave me a life message. Look, you're here. You're alive. You should be grateful about that. And stop blaming yourself for your friends. There's a reason why they're gone. There's a reason why you're here. And one of your reasons now is to go out there and do something more and honor them, honor their names, honor their history. They're the true heroes in this story. They're the ones that made the ultimate sacrifice. Now you have to earn that right to still be here. And and that really resonated in in me. And that made me realize that I was uh, complaining about my own, you know, injuries when they were so minimal compared to the 90% of the individuals who were at Walter Reed and that I was being selfish you talked about having traumatic brain injury from the blast. Um, I didn't think of that as something that you could quickly or fairly quickly get over. I, I think of that as something that reverberates through a lifetime. There are different levels, I believe. I'm not a subject matter expert when it comes down to traumatic brain injuries. I just know that mine was pretty mild, meaning that I couldn't remember certain names or animals or words for about six to eight weeks. But over time, my brain stabilize itself and I was able to go back and and do certain things uh you know I, I'm, I'm in grad school I'm, I'm a 3.8 GPA guy I just passed business statistics at a grad school level so I can't complain too much about <laughs> my traumatic brain injury <laughs> uh, but I kind of use it to my benefit sometimes when I, I forget keys or I forget to turn uh, the oven off and my girlfriend gets pretty fired up at me about these small things. So <laughs> I tell her, hey, baby, it's a traumatic brain injury. I can't help it. <laughs> so <laughs> so sort of the way I use it sometimes. At least if you survive, uh, yes, a suicide bombing, you get to play that card once in a while, it sounds like, Captain. 
once in a while. Hopefully, I never have to play that card when uh, if I get pulled over for speeding, you know. But um, I might have to. So, to all police officers listening over there, it's a joke. Um, <laughs> I have traumatic brain injury. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and on this Memorial Day, we are speaking with Army Captain Florent Groberg, who is a Medal of Honor winner. He was based at Fort Carson, and when he served in Afghanistan in 2012, he survived a suicide bombing. You grew up just outside of Paris and then came to the U.S. when you were young. What made you decide to join the the military here? So... My father adopted me. I didn't. I never met my uh, biological father, and my mom is French Algerian. And I was, we were just blessed enough that she uh, went out on a date once and met a guy from Gary, Indiana, named Larry Groberg. And he decided to marry her and adopt me. So he brought me to the United States. I was about eleven years old. I didn't speak English, and I was just in a different culture and and being so foreign. It was definitely a life changing experience, but. I fell in love with uh, the United States, specifically uh, sports. And I was a decent soccer player, a decent runner. I got to go uh, run at the University of Maryland cross-country and track and field. So that was a, a decent little career. I was just so in love with this country. But really, the biggest thing for me is that a man took me in and gave me his name. And he was American. And I, f- and I, I grew up with him. And he always made me feel American. So when 9-11 happened, that was definitely a very... Um, emotional state for me and has including everybody else in our nation and i knew that because an american uh, i had to it was my duty to go serve my country in a time of war and war was coming and i wanted to be a part of it and serve my country earn the right to call myself an american because i've been blessed and given an opportunity to you know be naturalized and so that was amazing for me and life-changing moment again so i had to earn it what relationship do you have with sports today and how is your Um, mobility in general Mobility is good. I just don't run. So I'm officially now retired from the United States Army and retired from running. So I can't. <laughs> so I do other things. A little CrossFit. I definitely lift, elliptical. I really don't like the elliptical, but I do it. But I can't play soccer. I can't really play basketball. All those uh, those type of team sports, I just can't do it because I can't run. But that's okay. I watch it. It sounds like service has really been important to you, to be of service after surviving the blast, how are you of service today? So, great question. Yeah. Today, I am. I've dedicated my 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 next mission to helping out the veteran community when you transition process. Uh, so, service members transitioning out in the military into corporate America. Uh, I partner up with LinkedIn. I'm a spokesperson for their veterans program, and our job is to make sure that we are giving our service members every single opportunity to be successful when transitioning to corporate America. Do you find that corporate America is still a bit perplexed as to what to do with veterans and how to interpret their service and their resumes? I think it's a two-way side. I mean, I I know for a fact what I've been witnessing is that a lot of these companies are out there uh, setting up a, a veteran HR offices so that, you know, once they get veteran resumes, uh, they can dissect them a little bit uh, more effectively. But it's also a situation on our side, military side, it's a perception that because I was an infantry soldier or infantry officer, as an example, I only bring a certain set of skills to the table, which means that when I transition, maybe I can only become a police officer, a firefighter or a contractor. 
Absolutely not. Absolutely not. If you're an infantry guy, you have leadership skills, you have team management skills, you're, you are you know what mission-centric is, you know how to be how to work within a diverse group of people. And that's things that companies such as LinkedIn, companies such as Facebook, Google, Techcom, U.S. banks, hundreds of thousands of other companies are looking for. What do you find veterans most need when they transition to the corporate world? Mentorship. I needed that. I personally needed that. I'll tell you a story. When I was transitioning, I went into a boardroom, and there's about 12 people there, and uh, we were having a pretty intense conversation about financial, uh, the next quarter of financials. I wasn't really involved, but they just told me to listen and learn. And halfway through that meeting, I took a, I finished my bottle of water, and then I took my t- uh, chewing tobacco, and I put a, what we call a dip, in my mouth, and then I started spitting in that bottle. And obviously, that was a big no-go for everybody else in the room. But nobody said anything to me because they figured, oh, he's a wounded guy and, you know, we don't want to bother him right now. But at the end, my mentor put me aside. He said, Flo, you just simply cannot do that. That is not a business etiquette. I know you come from the the, the infantry world and chewing tobacco in a meeting. That was okay. But here, here are certain things that you cannot do in, in corporate America. And we're going to help you with that. Just a simple thing. That's just one of the hundreds of examples that I can use in my own transition process. But I needed a mentor. I needed a guy to show me the ropes. And I needed a person that understood where I came from, but also taught me how to be comfortable in this new position and showed me ways for me to be successful. And I think that's really important. Tell me about getting the Medal of Honor and I think meeting the president at that ceremony. Receiving the Medal of Honor was one of those really interesting uh, emotional moments that um, a human being can go through. Uh, obviously, I didn't want it. I, if I could give it back right now and get my guys back, I would do that uh, without even thinking. But it, it's a great honor. Uh, the president was an outstanding individual. He was uh, he's very friendly. He remembered me, my my mother, my father, and my best friend, uh, Matt Sanders, from the, his visit in 2012. So it, it was pretty cool. He visited you at Walter Reed? Yes. Uh, he visited me at Walter Reed and, uh, and a couple other Wounded Warriors and on September 11, 2012. And the reason you, you would prefer not to have the Medal of Honor is just that you would have preferred not to go through what you and those men went through. Uh, you know, it's more that... The medal, you're, I'm, I'm receiving an award for actions on that resulted in four men not coming home. And that's the tough part. And I don't believe I, I deserve the medal because I believe that I acted like any soldiers, any soldier would act in that situation. I was the closest man to the threat and I had to react to the threat. That's what we're trained to do. That's what we believe in doing. That's the mentality and the mindset that is necessary to go serve your country and uh, hostile environments. But in this case, I received the Medal of Honor and on my on for actions on my worst day, on the worst day of my life. And so I didn't want it, but I realized the Medal of Honor doesn't belong to me, absolutely not. It's a symbol. In this case, it's specifically representing the four men, Commander Andrew Griffin, Major Gray, Major Kennedy, and Reggie Abdel Fattah and their family. So I decided in my own head that I would accept this this medal with the idea that I would be a courier and I would earn the right to wear it every single day by my actions on in my life. And I just hope that one day I get the opportunity to go meet my friends in heaven and they have a beer waiting for me and they say, you did all right. Thanks so much. Thank you. 
Army Captain Florent Groberg, recipient of the Medal of Honor. He was based at Fort Carson and now lives in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Military chaplain Zachary Moon has written a how-to book of sorts. It's for churches and faith communities that want to welcome returning soldiers. The title is Coming Home, Ministry That Matters with Veterans and Military Families. Chaplain Moon is also part of a new program at Denver's Olive School of Theology, which trains students of religion to work with veterans and active-duty military. Let's listen back to his interview with CPR's Andrea Dukakis. Welcome. Thank you, Andrea. So great to be here. In your book, you say that the public sees members of the military through a narrow lens. You write, quote, if all our knowledge is acquired from the media coverage and other sources that focus primarily on post-traumatic stress, traumatic brain injury, instances of suicide, and so on, we may come to see our service members as victims. What should the public and clergy members understand about these men and women? Andrew, I'd say that I've observed two conflicting national stories about uh, military service members, particularly in this generation. One is that story of victimhood uh, that are... Um, thinking and awareness and speaking of things like post-traumatic stress, veteran suicide, um, tells a certain kind of story about uh, our men and women really being broken by their military service and uh, frames, I think, our national response uh, almost as a kind of charity uh, kind of response to folks coming back. Well, certainly these are folks who need to be taken care of. And that uh, sort of feeds often a blame game that's related to uh, the VA hospital system and, and other kind of support structures uh, that are put in place. The story that runs uh, really in kind of polar opposite uh, to that story is the story um, of heroism um, that that you hear uh, now, particularly in this generation. Um, the sort of this thank you for your service. The thank you for your service kind of refrain. Um, and, and in many ways, uh, the thank you for your service gesture, I think, is a historical corrective of sorts. Um, that that even folks who have more liberal uh, political orientations um, find themselves saying thank you to your service if they see a service member in the airport or another public space. Um, and unfortunately, neither of these stories really um, do a very adequate job of telling the full and, and often complex story um, of what military service is about. And of course, this is a uniquely personal kind of experience. And so when we paint uh, these pictures with really broad strokes, uh, more often than not, we can, we, can, we can really miss some of that uniqueness. Yeah, you've said people, including religious leaders, have some preconceived notions about military culture. And anyone who works with service members needs to examine his or her own beliefs. Can you talk about those preconceived notions? What notions? What are they? Well, if we're talking about religious leaders, the first place to think is, you know, what are my associations, my beliefs and my values when it comes to military service uh, and and war making itself? Um, and I would uh, put that challenge out particularly uh, to more politically liberal oriented clergy um, who I think have a lot to offer uh, military service members and their families, but may uh, really be kind of opting out of some of those conversations and those relationships because of the feelings and beliefs they have have about war. So the book really encourages uh, all of us back home to really begin with ourselves. Um, I think this book more than anything is about relationships. How can we uh, better prepare ourselves to be in relationships? 
Um, and, and sometimes uh, being in relationships is as simple as recognizing that we see the world differently uh, than the mm-hmm. people in our communities and that that's okay. That doesn't have to be the end of relationship. Uh, sometimes it presents some discomfort uh, in, in the places where we aren't familiar. Uh, but that's an opportunity to really push past that, um, to ask the deeper question, to be curious and, and to think in a self-reflexive way about who we are and what we bring to those conversations. Uh, again, if, if all we're doing is educating ourselves about post-traumatic stress uh, and other struggles that veterans might be having, we, we may in fact kind of be missing how much we're bringing to the conversation. So mm-hmm. a great place to start uh, is is by taking a personal inventory. What am I bringing to this conversation that might be helping and could be hindering uh, that relationship to take place. Can you give me an example of what you might advise a member of the clergy when working with a service member? Well, I think it's important for us to think, uh, as I say, in really self-reflexive ways about the differences between our lived experiences and, and really be mindful and aware of that. But the other part is to not lose sight of all of the ways that we are really truly commonly connected to each other. Um, I think a lot about the value of service, um, how many church communities and other religious communities talk about doing community service. Well, if there's, if there's one value that really rises to the top uh, when we talk about uh, folks who've served in the military, it's service. It's uh, a deep commitment um, to uh, uh, protecting uh, that which is good. Um, and if we could imagine uh, creating opportunities uh, in, in more places and more times for military service members and for their families to continue that legacy of service once they've returned home, I think our religious communities can play a huge role in that. And in fact, some of the most significant um, organizations and, and work that's been done here that's really helped in that re-entry and reintegration process have been service-oriented. I imagine you've worked with soldiers with significant challenges like PTSD. Is the role of a military chaplain similar to the role of professional psychologists and psychiatrists who work with the military? I think you can. Uh, I think it would be fair to say that there are moments that overlap. Um, although I, I would say more than that, um, uh, what it means to be a chaplain is is to really be also thinking not only about a particular part of a person, but about the whole person. Um, if if I'm a clinician, I need to be really zeroed in uh, on on kind of particular elements of what's going on with that person. As a chaplain, it's really important for me um, to be holding all parts of that person um, as being intrinsically and necessarily connected. So if one of those parts of the person um, work, marriage, something. yes, right, elements that have to do with work, elements that have to do with relationship, elements that might have to do with mental health. If there's if there are any of those parts that are struggling, what tends to happen is other parts uh, start to really feel that stress and that strain. And so as a chaplain, um, I want to make sure that I'm seeing the whole person as much as possible so that I can also rally around the kind of support structure that that person needs going forward. And just briefly, you've helped develop a new program at the Iliff School of Theology at the University of Denver. It's to help educate clergy members about veterans and active duty troops. Thousands of soldiers have returned from places like Iraq and Afghanistan. How do you see the future role of congregations when it comes to these servicemen and women? 
Yeah, I have yet to visit a religious community that doesn't already have veterans and military families of one generation or another already present. So uh, when we think about the work that we're doing at Isle of School of Theology, we're really helping um, to equip um, ministers for the future. And whether those ministers are working in a congregational context in a chaplaincy context or elsewhere, they're going to have an opportunity uh, to be a pastor to somebody um, who's had this be a part of their experience. Chaplain Moon, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Zachary Moon is a military chaplain and part of the Military Ministry Program at Denver's Isle School of Theology. He spoke with Andrea Dukakis. Moon is also the author of Coming Home, Ministry That Matters with Veterans and Military Families. Colorado Matters continues after a break on CPR News. You're tuned to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Sixty-five years ago, Navy ensign Jesse Brown's plane was hit during the Korean War. Brown crash-landed behind enemy lines and was pinned inside as the fighter plane burned. His friend, Navy Lieutenant Tom Hudner, was left with a difficult choice. Let Jesse die or try a one-man rescue mission? Their story was widely celebrated in the Navy because it crossed the racial divide in an era of segregation. Denver writer Adam Makos tells the story in his new book, Devotion. He spoke to my colleague Nathan Heffel in December. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Nathan. Your book focuses on Tom, and he flies with Fighter Squadron 32, and he serves with his fellow wingman, Jesse Brown. Tell me about Jesse. Well, they were men from different worlds, these two. Jesse grew up in a sharecropper's field in Mississippi, so he was as dirt poor as poor could be. He literally worked the fields barefoot under a blazing sun. He lived in a a glorified shack with a tin roof. It would leak when it rained. Back then, his dream of flying for the U.S. Navy, he got this dream by reading magazines at night under a lantern's light. And he used to tell his other sharecroppers, he would say, I'm going to fly for the U.S. Navy. I'm going to land on a carrier someday. And they would just laugh at him. They would say, no black person can ride in a plane. This is 1938. Let alone fly the plane, let alone fly for the U.S. Navy. But Jesse's parents told him, you can do anything you set your mind to. And he went to Ohio State University and got a degree. And in 46, he joined the Navy, right? He did. And he was the first African-American fighter pilot, the first to win his wings. Uh, it was it was a milestone, and the Navy was proud of it at the time. He had broken through where where no other African American had. We the Tuskegee Airmen in World War II did it together. Mm-hmm. So they went through in classes of thirty or sixty or seventy. By the end of the war, there were hundreds and hundreds of Tuskegee Airmen. But they were in the army, and the Navy never cracked. And it was because the instructors would, would wash out any young black cadet with ambitions of being a, of wearing Navy wings. And Jesse's personality and his optimism and his patriotism, they saw him as a professional, as a young man who wanted to serve a country that wouldn't serve him if he walked into the wrong restaurant or bar. So give us an impression of who Tom was. Tom Hudner was um, from the country club scene of New England. So the guy looks like Paul Newman. You know, he had the ice blue eyes. He looks like a movie star. He had his whole life set for him. He was supposed to go to Harvard like his father. He was supposed to inherit the family business. His favorite activity at the country club in the summers was sailing. So big contrast from Jesse Brown. Huge difference. Exactly. And the common thread, though, was that Tom was a patriot, too. And so when World War II came about, he said, I want to serve my country. And he uh, joined the Navy, and his grandfather was furious because he's throwing away his silver spoon. 
He went to Annapolis and he became a fighter pilot. It was the most dangerous job on earth when Tom won his wings in 1949 and, and just like Jesse, was assigned to a fighter squadron. How did these two become such good friends? The Navy brought them together, and the uniform made them equal, and they chose to become friends. Again, they were different men. Jesse was a, a married man. He had a young daughter, Pamela, and he lived the married lifestyle, so he would go home at night. Tom was a bachelor. He lived on base, dedicated to his career. Their first interaction was a little awkward. Jesse came into the locker room. They were suiting up to fly, and Jesse said, oh, I understand we're flying, and he gave Tom this awkward wave, and then he went to suit up. Tom is lacing up his boots, and he stands up, and he says, I'm Tom Hudner, and he sticks his hand out. Well, Jesse stares at Tom's hand for a few seconds, and it's awkward, and Tom's thinking, what's wrong with this guy? Well, finally, Jesse shook his hand, and later, Jesse explained to him, he said, I'm sorry we got off on the wrong foot this morning. You see, in flight training, I would come up to a lot of my fellow cadets, and I would say, hi, I'm Jesse Brown, and I'd stick out my hand, and the other kid would leave his at his side. He said, so I don't force myself on people anymore. If they're going to be friendly, they'll be friendly soon enough. And Tom said, you'll never have to worry about that with me. War breaks out in Korea in 1950. What were these pilots who flew for the Navy asked to do? Well, it was a a difficult mission. They flew Corsair fighters, Tom and Jesse did. This is an aircraft made famous in World War II. And we often forget that the greatest generation fought two wars, World War II and then You could say Korea was an encore five years later. And they shot the same bullets. They dropped the same bombs. And it's interesting, Nathan, because both of these men could have stayed home. Tom could have stayed home and gone to Harvard. Jesse could have stayed home and lived as happily ever after with his wife. But they both said, we joined the Navy to fight for our country and defend it. So it really was that love of country for them that kept them in the Navy and and fighting in Korea. It really was. It really was. They... They both grew up in an era where they believed in something bigger than themselves. They believed in the ideals of America. And when you look at Jesse Brown, the discrimination he had endured, he still believed in what this country would be someday. And they also were deathly afraid that our country would be destroyed because those were the days right after the Berlin airlift, the Soviet Union had swallowed up Eastern Europe. They had swallowed up, uh, communism had swallowed China. The communists invaded South Korea. Their next target was Japan. And every day, Jesse and his wife woke up in fear that a a Soviet bomber would come over the polar ice cap and vaporize Washington, D.C. or vaporize San Francisco. And so they believed that America's survival was at stake in the Korean War. And I think we forget that. We say, ah, it's a border dispute. They were fighting to stop the expansion of the Soviet Union. They were they were fighting for the future of the United States of America. And that's the climate Jesse and Tom were flying in. They, they flew a number of missions, but on December 4th, 1950, something happens during the Battle of the Chosen Reservoir. Will you read from the book, please, uh, what happens at that time? Sure. Now, it was uh, one of the most epic battles of the Korean War. It was the darkest hours. Hmm. So just to preface the Battle of the Chosen Reservoir, Imagine we woke up tomorrow and you turn on the television or you turn on NPR and you hear that 10,000 United States Marines have been surrounded in Afghanistan by 100,000 Afghan troops and they're going to be annihilated and they're called the Lost Legion. It's a hopeless situation. That's what we were facing in 1950, November and December. The Chinese communists had entered the war. They caught us by surprise and we woke up 
and 10,000 Marines were surrounded at the Chosen Reservoir, outnumbered 10 to 1. And their only hope was their lifeline, and that was men like Tom and Jesse. Against a backdrop of gray clouds, the two blue Corsairs dived toward the snowy mountains. Tom glanced at Jesse as their planes plummeted side by side. Jesse's helmeted head scanned back and forth, his eyes searching for a place to crash. He was going down, 17 miles northwest of Hagaru, deep inside enemy territory. None of the pilots had heard the gunshots over their engines. None had seen the weapons rise or fall from the snowy field. But now a vapor trail slipped from the belly of Jesse's Corsair. A bullet had punctured the oil line. With every passing second, the oil was bleeding, the friction was rising, and the plane's 18 pistons were melting inside the engine. Denver author Adam Makos reading from his new book, Devotion, about a friendship that crossed racial lines during the Korean War. We'll hear what happened next after a break. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. In his new book, Devotion, Denver writer Adam Makos tells the story of two Navy pilots in the Korean War. Jesse Brown is the African-American son of a sharecropper in rural Mississippi. Tom Hudner is white and comes from a well-to-do New England family. Makos spoke with my colleague Nathan Heffel. War brought the unlikely friends together to this very point. Uh, Adam, Jesse's plane crashes hard atop a mountain in Korea. Tom is flying above him, sees a plume of smoke, and his friend waving. Jesse looks okay, but he's not getting out of his plane. What happened? Jesse was pinned inside the wreckage at his knee. The plane was smoking, about to catch fire. Now overhead, Tom sees Jesse struggling, and he knows not only is Jesse a married man, he knows he has a young daughter, but Tom knows Jesse's his friend. And that's really what goes through his mind. I've asked Tom many times. He's alive. He's 91 up in Massachusetts. I say, what was going through your mind? And all he could think of all these years later was, it's Jesse down there. And so he sees his friend about to burn to death. He says, I'm going in. And what he does next has never been done before. He crash lands his perfectly good Corsair fighter on the mountainside, skidding across the rock, plowing through the snow, and his plane comes to a stop alongside of Jesse's. And Tom opens the canopy. He's hit by the frigid cold, and he hops out into the deep snow to try to save his friend. And Adam, when Tom got to Jesse, how was he doing? He was in shock. Um, He had suffered internal injuries in the crash, but he was calm. And his first words to Tom were, Tom, we have to find a way of getting out of here. And Tom was, of course, all pumped up on adrenaline, and he said, Jesse actually settled me down. So Tom went about putting out the fire with his hands, you know, using snow and shoveling it on the fire. And then he waited at his friend's side. He tried to pull him out, but Jesse was helplessly pinned. So they waited, and they prayed, and they hoped for a rescue helicopter. And at the same time, there are, there are other Corsairs of, of the squadron above them. They're trying to protect Jesse and Tom. But then, one by one, they, they swoop in. They, they, they wag their wings uh, back and forth. Why, why did they do that? Darkness was coming. And the sun was, of course, setting. The night was getting colder. It would drop to sub-zero temperatures. And their fuel was running out. So the men stayed as long as they could. They kept the Chinese troops away because the area was crawling with enemy troops. And then they were saying goodbye to Jesse because he was helplessly pinned inside that aircraft and Tom was at his side. And one by one, they left until Tom and Jesse were alone. And Adam, eventually a rescue helicopter arrives. Uh, What happens then? Well, it 
got there, I don't want to say too late because the pilot did everything he could, but it was too late. Jesse had faded. Jesse's eyelids were drooping. He couldn't hold his head up. His breath was shallow. And he knew he was going to die. But he didn't die alone. So when, his, when he slumped over and he spoke his last, his friend was at his side. Tom and the helicopter pilot couldn't accept that Jesse had just died. So they tried to cut him out with the axe, but the axe was just bouncing off the frozen metal of the plane. They couldn't even stand on the wing. Their boots were covered in snow and they were sliding on the slick metal. They couldn't get Jesse out. And so the helicopter pilot gave Tom an option. He said, you come with me. It's getting dark. I can't fly in the darkness. You leave now or you stay here and you freeze to death. It was a choice, but it was no choice. And so before Tom left, He shouted at Jesse, who was motionless, who had already passed, and he said, we've done all we could, but we'll be back for you. Somehow, someway, we'll be back for you. And he gets in that helicopter and takes off, watching his friend as as the Chinese are, are moving in. Tom said it tore him to pieces. It was the hardest decision of his life, and the enemy did get there seconds after they had left. In the back of your book, there's a letter. It's by Jesse Brown to his wife, Daisy Brown Thorne, and it's dated the day before he dies. Can you read the first line from that? I will. It's an incredible letter given to us by Jesse's widow, who was a big part of this book and helped helped me write it. It's dated December 3, 1950, at sea, Sunday night. My own dear sweet angel, I'm so lonesome I could just boo-hoo. But I try to restrain myself and think of the fun we're going to have when we do get together. So only a few tears escape now and then. I love you so very much, my darling. You see, Jesse was an emotional guy. And he wasn't afraid to be emotional. He wasn't afraid to to tell his wife how much he loved her. That's why people loved him. And I'll jump to the end here. Darling, I'm going to close now and climb into the rack. I honestly dread going to bed. But I usually dream of you, so I'll manage to make it through until we share our bed together again. Darling, pray that it'll be soon. I have to fly tomorrow. But so far as that goes, my heart hasn't been down to earth since the first time you kissed me. And when you love me, you send it clear out of this world. I'll write again as soon as I can. I'll love you forever. Your devoted husband, lovingly and completely yours forever. Jesse. Hmm. Brown was the first African-American Navy pilot ever killed in action. He was awarded a a Distinguished Flying Cross, a a Purple Heart. A Navy frigate was named after him. How is his story important today? Well, it's, um, it's important for so many reasons. And I was always amazed that the story was not touched by another author. Why did another author not write the story of Tom Hudner and Jesse Brown? And I think it's because they saw that Jesse died. And we Americans sometimes like a happy ending. We like our movies to end with a wedding or a choreographed dance. But real life doesn't always have a happy ending. But it doesn't mean that the way you lived doesn't matter. The way Jesse lived, he inspired everyone around him. Everyone grew who knew him. And so it's a triumph in the midst of a tragedy. I think a great story like this waits until the nation needs it most. I think that's why nobody touched it. I think the people of 2015 need to see this story. They need to say, wait a second, in an era of racial division, a sharecropper's son and a white one percenter became friends and their friendship carried them to the end of the earth. What are we doing or what are we missing today? That America takes a step backwards 
in our race relations as opposed to forward. We're always supposed to be moving forward as a country. And I think these men from the past can be a beacon to guide us to the future. I find it fascinating in the book that Tom was worried he actually might have been punished for trying to save his friend. Did that actually happen? On paper, he was supposed to be punished. He ruined a Navy aircraft. He was warned, we, it's bad enough to lose one pilot. We don't want to lose two. So he was warned not to do this kind of thing. But when he got back to the carrier, instead of punishing him, the captain of the ship said, thank you for trying to save our shipmate. Everyone on that aircraft carrier loved him. And so instead, the captain recommended Tom for the Medal of Honor. President Truman fast-tracked the Medal of Honor because Truman had said in 1948, when he integrated the military, he said black men and white men can fight side by side. And a lot of people didn't believe him. Tom and Jesse validated that. They set the tone for the future of the U.S. military. They showed that Truman was right, that the model works, and that we're meant to work together. We're meant to live and fight and grow. We're meant to coexist. You know Tom very well. He, he trusted you to tell the story. What does he do to honor his friend all these years later? His devotion to Jesse is really lifelong. When Tom earned the Medal of Honor, his hometown threw him a parade. And at the end, they gave him $1,000. And they said, what are you going to do? Buy a car? You want to go on vacation? And Tom said, you know, I think Jesse's widow needs to go to college. Jesse's greatest fear, and Tom knew this, was that his wife, if anything should happen to him, she would end up in someone's kitchen. And so Jesse had asked her, he had said, if something happens to me, go to school, get an education, and become a teacher like my mother. It's the best job there was. And so Tom helped that dream come true. He helped Daisy Brown go to college. She became a home economics teacher. She became one of the best teachers in the state of Mississippi. She lived a wonderful life. And in 2013, you remember that promise he made to him, we'll be back for you? Well, he kept it. He and I traveled together to North Korea, and Tom sat down with the most feared army on earth, the North Korean army, and he said, my friend is still resting on your mountainside. His remains are in this wrecked fighter plane on a North Korean mountain. My government can't come look for him because of the relations we have. He said, but will you look for Jesse Brown for me? What, what happened? It was shocking. The North Koreans said, we have a message for you from Kim Jong-un, the new dictator. And they said, Kim Jong-un admires you coming so far after so long to keep a promise to a friend. And he pledges the North Korean army will search for your friend, Jesse Brown. So someday when Jesse Brown's flag draped coffin comes home to Arlington Cemetery, Tom will have done it. He will have brought his wingman home. Adam, thanks so much for taking the time to speak to me. I, I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Nathan. That is Adam Makos of Denver. His new book is called Devotion. He spoke with CPR's Nathan Heffel. In Idaho Springs, west of Denver, there is a nine-foot statue of a man who never lived. It's a cartoon carved in stone, writes Matt Masick. He's editor of Colorado Life magazine, and welcome to the program. Hi there. What is this statue of? This is Steve Canyon. He was a, an ace fighter pilot in World War II. Then he, after the war, he uh, went on all sorts of adventures as sort of a freelance adventurer. 
Thing is, he wasn't actually real. He was a cartoon. He was the star of the Steve Canyon cartoon strip. Came out in 1947. Okay, lots of questions that raises. I mean, first of all, why would you build a statue to a cartoon character? Is there some Idaho Springs connection to this? No Idaho Springs connection whatsoever. So back in 47, Steve Canyon was the hot new cartoon guy on the scene. Kind of the Calvin and Hobbes of its day or something? Not quite. He was a tad more heroic than that. Uh, This was right after World War II. People were on a patriotic crest and really wanted to honor service members who had returned to the community. And uh, that's what Steve was. He he started out as a a fighter pilot, and then uh, he kind of integrated back into society but kept that adventurous spirit of of the warriors going. I see. So he's really a symbol of so many of the troops who have returned. That's right. And at that same time, the city of Idaho Springs was trying to revive its Gold Rush Days Festival, which had sort of gone on hiatus during the Depression and the war. And so the local junior chamber of commerce thought, well, we need to get people excited about our gold rush days. Why don't we latch on to some other person's fame? How about (laughs) Steve Canyon? We'll rename Squirrel Gulch Steve Canyon. And so uh, that's how the connection began. And then I guess you've created the local connection and you can erect a nine-foot statue. Right. They invited uh, Steve Canyon's creator, Milton Kniff, to their Gold Rush days, and they put out a big production. They invited the governor. Everybody in town turned out. Everybody was real excited uh, to have Milton Kniff, the famous cartoonist, come to inaugurate Steve Canyon the Canyon. And then three years later, this has gotten a lot of press uh, nationally. The president of the Indiana Limestone Company read an article that said Idaho Springs wants to erect some kind of marker to really solidify this connection to Steve Canyon. And he said, well, I'll, I'll donate a nine-foot limestone statue. Hmm. And so uh, they had another big production. Uh, the governor came out again that, for this big dedication. And at that dedication in 1950, the mayor of Idaho Springs said, this statue of Steve Canyon is going to put Idaho Springs on the map of the world, believe me. Did it save their festival? Like, did it bring butts in the seats? Oh, yeah. It, it really revived the festival. They even thought about calling it Steve Canyon Days. Such was the connection. So it, it accomplished that goal, at least in the short term. Okay. You write that some residents balked at the idea of honoring a cartoon character. So what finally swayed them? That's right. People said, we don't have uh, a statue of our town founder or any other thing. Why should we have a cartoon character? And, and so... Uh, They thought about it and they said, well, this isn't going to be just for Steve Canyon. This is a monument honoring all military airmen who served in World War II and are prepared to serve again. Keep in mind, this is just a few months before the outbreak of the Korean War. I see. And so it takes on a bit more of a hefty symbol. Right. It is a a patriotic symbol honoring uh, our military airmen. And a cartoon character. And a cartoon character. Yeah, Steve Canyon, not not much of a name these days. When did it stop publishing? Well, it actually continued publishing until 1988, but uh, it sort of lost its initial charm after uh, a few years. It wasn't quite as popular as it was in its early years. They probably would have been better off honoring Snoopy if they wanted to go for a longevity. <laughs> okay. Uh, finally, you say the only people who give this statue uh, any thought, really— Our high school students. Right. At homecoming, uh, Clear Creek High School, uh, they come and dress them up in all manner of hilarious costume. Uh, But people do respect Steve as sort of like a member of the community. It's not an honored hero so much as, oh, there's Steve. Hi, Steve. 
You can see Steve at our website, cprnews.org. Matt, thanks so much. Thank you. Matt Masick, editor of Colorado Life magazine. His article about Idaho Springs' Steve Canyon statue appears in the current issue. And that's the program for today. Rachel Estabrook is the managing producer, and our producers include Anthony Cotton, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle P. Fulcher, Nathan Heffel, and Stephanie Wolf. Michael Hughes mixed today's show. I'm Ryan Warner, and this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. <laughs>